Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Heather, and I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century. It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys, and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester, and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore, and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much. And now to the show. Hello, and welcome to a very special ghoulish, spooky edition of the Renaissance English History Podcast. I'm your host, Heather Tesco. And for the second time this week, this is an episode jointly produced with me and Brittany at History Bitches. Our first episode was on ghosts. And this one is on another Halloween theme, witches and witchcraft. So I really hope you enjoy the show. It's mostly a conversation where we share the research that we did on witches and witchcraft. And just a couple of reminders. First, this podcast is brought to you by Big World Tours. So I have to give a plug for my company that I'm starting in partnership with a good friend of mine. We're designing tours that allow you to travel and, and dive into your passions and interests through travel. So our first tour is England at the end of April 2016 for nine days. We're calling it Cathedrals and Choirs, and we're focusing on the musical history of the English choral tradition, visiting and hearing music in places like King's College, Cambridge, Bath, and Winchester. It's going to be an amazing trip, and I really hope you will consider coming. To learn more, you can go to bigworld.com. That's www.bigworld, all one word, bigworld.com big world, travel your passions. Secondly, um, if you like this podcast, please remember to rate it in whatever service that you listen to, whether it's iTunes or Stitcher or something else. And also remember, 
that at englandcast.com, there are continually updated resources like reading lists and listening lists and buttons to donate, links to the Patreon page if you are so inclined to support this podcast financially, either through a one-time tip or making a regular subscription contribution, and both are incredibly appreciated. And also, finally, I now have a listener feedback line. So you can call me on 801-6-TESCO. That's 801-683-9756. Again, 801-6-TESCO. To leave feedback, show ideas, say nice things to me, anything like that. So we'll go ahead and get started now. So hi, everybody. This is Heather from the Renaissance English History Podcast. And I'm here with a very special also guest. Oh, you're so sweet. I'm special. <laughs> you are. Hi, you're guys. not you're just special. You're very special. Oh, thank you. Hi, guys. Um, my name is Brittany, and I am the host of the podcast, History Bitches. Um, and hopefully you'll remember me because you listened to our previous podcast on ghosts so i'm back for round or hopefully two. they'll remember me if they were if they were history bitches absolutely <laughs> and so we're back for round two and today we're going to be covering witches witches <laughs> yeah so as we get started so we're just i guess how this is going to go for people is we're going to have a conversation about witchcraft and it's because we're in kind of October and it's Halloween and we just did ghosts. And so witches are the next logical place. And so we're going to give a little bit of a background of witchcraft and how kind of witchcraft, the fear of witches got started and kind of snowballed into these witchcraft trials that, of course, in the U.S. we had Salem. Um, but we're going to talk about witchcraft trials mostly in England and in Ireland. And so we're going to give a little bit of a background on, on witchcraft in general. And then we're each going to talk about a couple of witches that we found. And then we're going to talk about pretty much the most famous witchcraft trial in English history, the Pendle witches from 1612. So does that sound right, Brittany? Yeah, that sounds absolutely perfect. Um, <laughs> are there owls in the background? It sounds like it, doesn't this it? Is, I'm, this is perfect. <laughs> no, you know, I'm sitting outside because my daughter's up and I it, nobody wants to hear my daughter talking in the background. So you get owls instead, which really adds to um, the ambiance. And maybe people can listen to this in the dark as well. I was and, I was a little spooked out and I'm sitting in my office and it's daylight, <laughs> daylight outside. <laughs> I was trying to figure out where that noise was coming from. No, that's perfect. It adds like just the right amount of ambiance. I love it. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah, you know, I when I was when we were talking about witchcraft, I think it's kind of ironic that it's really in the Renaissance that there's like this emphasis on learning than ever before. And with that came this renewed interest in witchcraft and persecuting witches. And I just think it's interesting that like, as you come into a more modern period, suddenly witchcraft becomes a, a thing that people are, are afraid of and there's witch hunts. And apparently part of that is because of the printing press. Some of the earliest books that were printed were biblical tracts and Bibles, which promoted the ideas about witches and witchcraft and, and led to kind of renewed interest in witch hunts. 
And before the Renaissance, it was kind of accepted that there could be sort of healing wise women who administered potions to cure illnesses. And sometimes they might say an incantation over you. And that was just kind of accepted in village life. And these witches were often considered good. But one of the things that's interesting is it's also kind of with the Black Death that there was this huge catastrophe where a third of the population dies and there wasn't any place to put blame with that. And it's before the scientific revolution. It's before people have any kind of concept of germs or anything like that. And you just have entire villages wiped out. And and how do you try and explain that? And so people started looking towards witches as, as a way to sort of explain when things like the Black Death happened. And so anger and confusion like had to be directed somewhere and witches were this really obvious place to turn. So when you have things like crops failing or children dying or any kind of tragic act like that happening, witches are the obvious people to blame. So like when crops went bad, it just was devastating to people. It's not like people had like insurance for that kind of stuff. So, you know, if you lost your crop or if your house burned down, you, it was just devastating. And, um, and you had to have a place to, to really kind of place blame to try and understand it for yourself. And so it was kind of an, an obvious place then to look to say, well, maybe it was this particular person who might not be a really popular part of our community. And maybe she's seen talking to herself sometimes, and maybe she's the one who did it. I think it's interesting, though, that there were a lot more witch hunts and executions in mainland Europe and in Scotland than in England. Um, England was pretty mild by comparison to the witch hunts on the continent. Interestingly, with witches, of course, it was women who were most often accused of being witches. And in the Elizabethan witchcraft trial, I think there were 270 witchcraft trials and 247 of them were women and only 23 were men. So this was largely a phenomenon that was a a woman-centric sort of thing and, and you were at risk if you were a woman. And there's a couple of things that made women at risk as well, and that would be if they were maybe old or poor or unprotected if they didn't have the protection of their families. And also if they would have had animals that would maybe be their considered their familiars. And it's really sad because it, you look at people like maybe old widows who don't have any family around them and they would want to have animals because dogs make great friends. And so why wouldn't you want to have cats yeah, and dogs companion. and things like that? And that could then come back and, and make people think that you were a witch. And one of the things that I just am really interested in is is the importance of the role of community with with witches and like the role of having a community for protection. And I think it's interesting that, you know, people didn't travel much in in this timing. Mean, there's always like this stereotype that people didn't go further than a couple miles from their house and, and you didn't really move and pick up roots and start in new places. And a lot of that was because it was so important to have this community that you grew up with that knew you. And if you were at all different, if you were somebody who, if you were a woman who you might now be considered like a free spirit or somebody who's just unique um, at in Renaissance England and pre sort of um, enlightenment period, if something happened and you were this kind of woman, you might be at risk of being blamed and as somebody who's always been sort of doing my own thing and being somebody unique, that kind of touches home to me because I just think like it'd be really hard to try and be myself at that 
back then if, uh, you know, you suddenly then are accused of witchcraft when something bad happens. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's really sad to think about some of these people who were targeted. And it is interesting, though, that in, like I said, in England, women weren't usually killed for witchcraft and burned at the stake like in other countries. Um, a lot of times maybe they'd be bullied in their village, but um, they weren't necessarily killed in the same rates and burned at the stake in the same rates as in other countries. And then, of course, as the Enlightenment thoughts spread gradually the fear of witches subsided because suddenly there were you know scientific reasons behind things like crop failures and diseases and things like that so looking at renaissance england henry the eighth had passed a witchcraft act in 1542 and that had defined witchcraft as a felony which was a crime that was punishable by death and forfeiting your goods and it laid out the law of what of defining a witch and the actions included were, quote, using devices or practicing or exercising or causing to be devised, practiced or exercised any invocations or conjurations of sprites, witches, enchantments or sorceries to the intent to find money or treasure or to waste, consume or destroy any person in his body members or to provoke any person to unlawful love or for any other unlawful intent or purpose. I thought that was interesting because, um, you know, as Henry VIII was trying to get kind of get rid of his second wife, Anne Boleyn, there were a lot of rumors that uh, were spread that she was a witch and she had bewitched him. And, and that was something that he was had been worried about. And I think it's interesting that in his witchcraft act, he said to provoke any person to unlawful love or for any other unlawful intent. So maybe he was in part thinking about Anne bewitching him um, to have him fall in love with her at that point. And... Um, the it's something else that's interesting is up until this point for for laws like this if if you were a clerk they called it this law called the benefit of clergy where if you could read any verse from the bible you were rescued from being hanged and uh so a lot of clergy who could read would be able to read a verse from the bible and that would save their lives and that was called benefit of clergy and these witchcraft acts took out benefit of clergy so that was kind of a really big deal too so it meant that even if you were in the clergy if you even if you were educated um that wasn't going to save you which it had before um and then Queen Elizabeth passed another Witchcraft Act 20 years later. It was similar to Henry's, but it was actually slightly less um, strict, and it only demanded the death penalty where harm had been caused. And if you did something, a, a lesser offense that didn't have harm, it was just punished through imprisonment. And so, yeah, that was it was also took out benefit of clergy as well. So that's kind of the backdrop of what was going on with witchcraft and the laws around witchcraft at the time. So now we're going to talk about some early famous witches. And the first one is Dame Alice Keitler. And she was actually, it's said to be the earliest person accused and condemned for witchcraft in Ireland. She was born around 1280 and her trials, all the, all the accusations against her took place in the mid 1320s. And she had fled the country, so she wasn't actually burned for, for witchcraft, but her servant was flogged and burned to death at the stake in 1324. So Alice had been born into a Flemish family of merchants in Ireland, and she was married four times. And early on, at one point in 1302, she and her second husband were actually 
briefly accused of killing her first husband, but the charges didn't stick. And she had a lot of wealth and she was also involved in money lending, which at the time that was considered really um, not a cool thing to be doing. Um, it was something taking advantage of, of people. If you were in money lending and charging interest, it, it wasn't something that was smiled on. And so I think there might have been a lot of resentment towards her in the community as well. And her fourth husband, he got ill, he got sick in 1325, and he expressed the suspicion that he was being poisoned. And after his death, his children and those of her previous three husbands all got together and they accused her of using poison and sorcery against their father and of favoring her firstborn son, William Outlaw. And it's interesting that like as soon as she became unprotected when her husband died, suddenly everybody comes out and <laughs> seems to come out at once and say she's favoring her firstborn son and she's a sorceress. And maybe she did they did really think she was a witch. Maybe they were just trying to get even for perceived slights throughout the years, and that was kind of the weapon that they pulled out. And she was also accused of denying the faith of Christ and the church and cutting up animals to sacrifice to demons and holding secret meat meetings in churches to perform black magic and using sorcery and possession of a familiar and she and the murder of her husbands. And also she's interesting because she's the first person ever accused of um, having sexual relations with a demon, uh, with an incubus, which is something that later on would would come out a lot. Um, she was the first person that was accused of that. And so there was all this drama with her, the local bishop, he was obsessed with the laws of church and, and morality. And when the case was first presented, he jumped on it to make a statement about witchcraft. And Alice, then she still had some powerful friends. So she called on their assistance. And the bishop actually was sent to jail, then he was released, and he had this vendetta, there was all this kind of back and forth. And in the end, she left the country, she fled probably to England, and she doesn't appear in the records anywhere else after that. So nobody really knows what happened to her. But the bishop continued to pursue the people who were associated with her. And like I said, her servant was flogged and burned at the stake. And the favored son, William Outlaw, was also accused of heresy, usury, perjury, and adultery. And he recanted and was ordered to hear mass, three masses a year, and to feed the poor. And so Alice's case is significant. It, it was one of the earliest European witchcraft trials. And like I said, it was also the first time a witch, it was claimed that a witch had sexual relations with an incubus. So that's an interesting theme. I find that uh, story just so horrifying because she was accused by her children and knowing, you know, sort of what the punishment could potentially be. You said her servant was flogged and burned at the stake i can't imagine putting your own mother in a situation where that could you know that could be her fate yeah you just really have to wonder what their you know christmas dinner was like <laughs> christmas dinner just dinner around the table in general <laughs> right just like like hey kids yeah you just told the bishop i'm a witch and accuse me of having sex with an incubus. <laughs> I know. I know. It's terrible. I just really wonder what the dynamics are. And I think it's so interesting that it all happened as soon as her husband died. Then, you know, I could see maybe his kids 
coming out and saying she poisoned him, but then the other three husbands, children all, all coming out at once. And I, I just, I really wonder what was going on. Like, did she not give them money when they wanted? I, I and these are her just, children by birth, correct? Or are these some of them and some of, yeah, some of them were. Okay. I can understand this, the, the stepchild angle, but if this is your, your biological mother, wow, you, you might need to go to therapy. <laughs> well, yeah, I think probably. But you're going to talk about la- that later with the Pendle Witches, too. I that am. Was a big thing with Look, foreshadowing. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, so another witch that I think is really interesting, there's a dog barking, too. See the ambiance here. I'm, I'm doing this all on purpose for you guys. I so it. I hope people enjoy that. <laughs> um, so another famous one was um, Mother Shipton. And she, her name was actually Ursula South Isle. And she was born in 1488 in a cave in Yorkshire. And so it's now called Mother Shipton's Cave. And her mother had been considered a witch as well. And so her own mother had fled the town and given birth to her daughter in this. Can you hear that dog barking? Yeah. Okay. Should we just wait for a second? Um, no, it's somebody's familiar. <laughs> what? I said oh, it's somebody's, somebody's familiar. It's <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, maybe he'll stop. So sorry if people are bothered by this. So I'll just start over here. So um, another famous witch that I found was actually the daughter of a witch. And... They actually fit like every criteria of witches in the Middle Ages. And so her name was Ursula South Isle. She was born in 1488 in a cave in Yorkshire, which is now called Mother Shipton's Cave. And that's because she became known as Mother Shipton. Clever. And so her own mother was accused of being a witch and fled the town to give birth to her daughter in the cave. And she actually died during the baby's birth during Ursula's birth, but Ursula survived and was raised by a neighbor. So that right there is just so tragic because I've been through childbirth and I can't imagine like you're so ostracized from the community and you have to go give birth in a cave and you die giving birth to your child. And like, who knows, like you're probably worried what's going to happen to your child as well. And it's just, it just this whole calling people witches and ostracizing them just breaks my heart. But anyway, so Ursula's rescued by a neighbor and she's raised by this neighbor and she becomes known as mother Shipton um, because she marries Toby Shipton, a local carpenter near York in 1512. Um, she became a soothsayer and a prophetess and the first publication of her prophecies didn't appear until 1641, which is almost 80 years after her death. And, um, in 1684, there was another edition of her prophecies that was published and it gives a lot of details about her life. Um, it claims that she was really hideously ugly. So that's interesting. And she married Toby Shipton and she made predictions all through her life And interestingly, the diary of Samuel Pepys record, he records that while the royal family were surveying the damage to London during the Great Fire of London, they were actually heard talking about Mother Shipton's prophecy of the fire. So um, even the royal family knew about Mother Shipton and that she had perhaps prophesied this fire that was going to come. And the cave where she was born, which is now known as Mother Shipton's Cave, 
opened as a visitor attraction in 1630, and it's one of England's oldest tourist attractions. And really, a l- not very much is known about who she was or even what she said, but she became this legend whose name was linked with all kinds of tragedies and unexplainable events all over the world. So in the UK, in Australia, and in North America, all the way through the 19th century, um, people would talk about, oh, that happened because Mother Shipton said. And the Victorians became really obsessed with her as well and started reprinting all of her stuff, um, all of her her different prophecies that she was supposedly said. And so that's why actually now it's kind of even hard to know what exactly she did say because there's been so many printings of her books and each person adds a little bit more. Um, But it's interesting that she was one of these witches that was just kind of part of the village. She was never charged with witchcraft. And even though her mother had been ostracized from the community, she was still able to be part of it and to stay safe. And um, she was more considered to be kind of one of the good kinds of wise women that would tell your fortune and maybe heal you if she could. And those kinds of women had existed through the generations. And, and so she was sort of an example of that. So I'm going to be talking about um, a supposed witch called Agnes Sampson. And like um, Mother Shipton, she was initially considered to be a wise woman, one of these sort of outliers in the community that was, um, that was accepted. She was a, because her presence was a necessity. She, you know, she knew things. She knew things about, um, you know, taking a woman through childbirth or how to heal the sick or things like that. Um, so she was a Scottish healer and she was known as the wise wife of Keith. Um, but unfortunately, unlike Mother Shipton, the community uh, turned pretty quickly on her. Um, And so, like I said, initially, she had acted as a a midwife. And her story sort of picks up in the spring of 1590, when James VI um, was returning from Oslo after marrying Anne of Denmark. And on that particular voyage, uh, their ship was really beset by storms. And Danish witches were initially blamed, and several women in Denmark were burned as witches um, because they were held responsible for this really terrible storm that had um, followed the wedding party back to England. Now, when James heard about this, he decided that maybe it would be a good idea to set up his own tribunal now that he was back um, in the UK to look for maybe English or Scottish witches that had also played a part in the storm. And what I find really interesting about um, this particular set of witch trials is that um, many of the accused witches were actually questioned by James himself. He was very hands-on in terms of these witch trials, and he actually went on to write a book about witches called Demonology. But the particular witch trial that Agnes Sampson got caught up in was the North Barrack Witch Trials, and they ran for two years between 1590, which is um, sort of that start date when James was returning from marrying Anne of Denmark to 1592, and it implicated 70 people. Um, And initially, the Scottish witches were linked to the storms by this maid named Gillis Duncan. And she worked for a man named David Seaton, and she had been 
forced into making a confession um, under torture. Um, and during a con- during her confession, um, she also implicated other people in being involved in this storm that um, led to James's ship being caught in the storm. And one of the women that she named, of course, was Agnes Sampson. And um, sort of the the story that is sort of carried down through history is that initially, sorry, my my little familiar is uh, is clawing at my <laughs> leg right now. So sorry, I'm having to shoot her away. Um, but the story as it's told is that Agnes initially absolutely denied these charges. Um, that she'd attended a witch's coven on Halloween night um, that created this storm, but she, she was tortured. And after being tortured and after, you know, being denied sleep um, and these other horrible things that were inflicted on this poor woman, she confessed. And um, initially the King wasn't quite sure about her confession, thought that maybe that they were brought on by this torture and the sleep deprivation. But apparently she said something in her last confession that convinced uh, James of her guilt. And she was taken to the scaffold on Castle Hill where she was garroted. um, And that means she was strangled and then she was burned at the stake. And one of the things that, um, makes her trial really unique is that we have a lot of information about it because the Edinburgh Borough Treasurer itemized how much it was to um, have her execution, which took place on the 16th day of January, 1591. And when all was said and done, her execution cost six pounds, eight shillings and 10 ducats, I think. Is that what that D stands for? Yes. Yeah. That's what I thought. Ducats. Um, and so that's really terrible. Um, and then I want to say that her ghost um, is still sort of roaming around. Her spirit is a bit restless because of all of the terrible things that happened to her. So she is supposed to haunt the palace of Holyrood House on the Royal Mile. And apparently her naked ghost, um, she's been stripped and tortured, sort of roams back and forth Um sort of seeking justice so I thought that was pretty sad yeah pretty sad and pretty scary yeah both that is I think it's interesting that James was so interested in witches and also like making sure that he got it right kind of thing he seems very scientific about it like really interested in like wanting to make sure that like he did the questioning himself sometimes and stuff like that right yeah but there's something that also doesn't sort of sit right with me. I think there's an element of wanting to be right, but there's also um, sort of a, a dangerous sort of obsession there. Yeah. Um, that yeah. just sort of lends a real um, spookiness to the whole thing. That he that he was so hands on, and it could be because yeah. you know people's lives were at stake. But I also I also get something a bit more sinister in that as well. Yeah, like it was just kind of his pet project or something. Exactly. He wrote a book on it. Right. Yeah. Right. And people didn't really write books as much back then. Yeah. So. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um so just a couple of years after that, like 20 years after that, um was actually the 
most one of the most famous witchcraft trials in England and the executions from that trial actually made up like 2% of England's total witchcraft executions. I saw that. That, that statistic just blew my mind. Yeah. And it reminds me so much uh, to being sort of a similar story to Salem in the U.S. where there was kind of like different families and these sort of deep-seated resentments that all came kind of spewing out at once and turning into this giant witchcraft mess. And um, yeah, it's a really interesting interesting thing to look at. Um, So we're going to be talking about that together um, because it is so interesting. And... um, so six of the witches who were part of this came from two families and each of those families was headed up by a woman in her eighties. And just to set the back kind of backdrop of this is the outbreak occurred in the area around Pendle Hill in Lancashire. And it was an area known as being really wild and lawless. There had been an, an Abbey nearby in Wally, which was dissolved in 1537, and the abbot had been executed. And maybe despite or maybe even because of this, the area remained really strongly Catholic. And of course, in Elizabeth's reign, Protestantism was was becoming the victorious religion. And many people around the area still continued to celebrate the mass in secret. And um, a lot of the names on the lists of sort of recusant Catholics were from this area. So it was an area that was kind of lawless, was kind of doing its own thing, and um, was sort of already just saying to the government, like, we're doing our own thing and kind of stay out. And so... Also, um, a year after James acceded to the English throne, he enacted another law about witchcraft because he was so obsessed, um, which imposed the death penalty in cases where it was proven that harm had been caused through the use of magic or if corpses had been exhumed for magical purposes. So um, that's kind of sort of the backdrop of what was going on at this time. So in early 1612, Every justice of the peace in Lancashire was ordered to make a list of all of the recusant Catholics in their district. And recusant Catholics were people who absolutely refused to go to any Church of England service. So they wouldn't even go and like some people would go and cross their fingers behind their backs and things like that if they didn't believe what the vicar was saying. But the recusants wouldn't even go and they would often pay fines. And so they were just like, yeah, we're officially not doing this. And so there was sort of this kind of background of investigating all of these nonconformists that um, the the Justice of Peace for Pendle, Roger Noel, he made an investigation into the family of John Law. John Law was a peddler who claimed to have been injured by a witch. And a lot of those who became involved in the trial actually did sort of consider themselves witches, but in the way that Mother Shipton had been a witch, sort of like wise women who maybe uttered incantations and helped cure sicknesses and were an accepted part of the village and had been for a long time. And the judges who were charged with hearing the evidence and running the trial, they're actually funny ones, too. They kind of found themselves in a pickle because one of them was hoping for a promotion. And the other one had been recently accused of a miscarriage of justice in New York, which had resulted in a woman being hanged for witchcraft that shouldn't have actually happened. And so there was a lot of publicity around what was being investigated here and around these trials and also because it was so big um, they knew that 
that the king was going to be watching. So the events leading up to the trial were simple enough. Um, one of the matriarchs, her name was Elizabeth Southerns or Demdike, Elizabeth Demdike had been, she'd been regarded as a witch for like 50 years, but the, in the events that sort of triggered the investigation happened in the spring of 1612 when her granddaughter, Alison Device, met John Law, the peddler, and asked him for some, pin, for some pins. Metal pins at the time were handmade and really expensive, and they were often used for magical purposes and perhaps for healing or maybe also for sort of love spells. And so John Law was reluctant to sell these pins to her. Maybe he was worried about what she was going to do with them. Maybe he just didn't want to open up his peddler pack for such a small transaction, for such a small sale. Or maybe she was begging for them, which is what his son had said but for whatever reason, he didn't sell or give them to her. And then a few minutes after they met, Allison saw Law stumble and fall. And some people think that he might have had a stroke, but he managed to get up and make it to a nearby inn. And he never accused her, but Allison herself seemed to think that she was actually guilty of hurting him. And when Law's son took her to visit his father a few days later, she confessed and asked for his forgiveness. So then Allison and her mother, Elizabeth, and her brother, James, were summoned to appear before Noel on the 30th of March in 1612. And Allison confessed that she had sold her soul to the devil and she had told him to lame John Law after he had called her a thief. And her brother, James, stated that his sister had also confessed to bewitching a local child. And when questioned about Anne Whittle Chaddix, the matriarch of the other family involved in witchcraft around Pendle, Allison might have seen an opportunity for some revenge because there had been some bad blood between the two families dating from around 1601, so for like 10, 11 years, when a member of the Chaddix family broke into the home of the devices and stole some goods equivalent, it wasn't a lot, equivalent to about 100 pounds in modern money. So Allison accused Chaddix of murdering four men by witchcraft and of killing her father, John Device, who had died in 1601. And she claimed that her father had been so frightened of old lady Chaddix that he had agreed to give her eight pounds of oatmeal each year in return for her promise not to hurt his family. And apparently the oatmeal was handed over annually until the year before John's death. And on his deathbed, John claimed that his sickness had been caused by Chaddix because he had not paid for his protection that year. So that's kind of how things got started. And do you want to take it up from there? Yeah. So what I'll do is I'm going to pick up with the trials. Um, and we had a conversation about this when we were um, sort of discussing how we were going to um, – the, the flow of the podcast and we decided we weren't going to go into sort of each individual trial because um, as you can probably tell, there's a lot of he said, she said in the story. Um, and there's also a lot of um, sort of, you know, so-and-so is accused of spoiling, you know, a, a batch of somebody's beer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so um, what I decided to really focus on is the um, the trials of um, Dimdike's family um, and sort of um, really focus in on a few specific people. But um, what I wanted to um, say first is that 
the Pendle witches, they were also tried with a group of women called the, I'm going to mess this up, uh, Samlesbury witches, um, a woman named Margaret Peter, Peterson, or sorry, Pearson, who was the Padaham witch. Um, and unfortunately for this poor woman, it was her third trial for witchcraft. This time it was for killing a horse. Um, and then a woman named Isabel Roby. So the two trials or the the trial that I'm really going to focus on is um, the trial of Elizabeth Device, James Device, Alice Nutter and Dimdike. And those trials were really interesting for me because, as we sort of mentioned um, at the top of the podcast, uh, you get these sort of. Uh, situations where you have family members that turn against one another. And so Alice Device was charged with the murder of James and John Robinson. And she had been accused of committing those murders along with Alice Nutter and Demdike. And Demdike had also been accused of murdering a man named Henry Mitten. And the main witness against Elizabeth Device was actually her nine-year-old daughter, Jeanette. And so messed up. I know. And this was also, in addition to being really messed up, um, a strange sort of situation because during this particular time period, it would have been really unusual for somebody that young to present evidence in a case. But um, as I mentioned before, King James had written this book called Demonology, and he said that under, you know, extenuating circumstances, children, women, and liars can be witnesses over high, tre- high treason against God. And so, oh my I, I know. So, um, with that sort of clearing the path for Jeanette, um, she was um, presented as this sort of star witness against her mother. And when she was asked to come in and give evidence against her mother, Elizabeth, Elizabeth just started to scream and curse her daughter to the extent that um, she was forced out of the courtroom. Um, One of the ways that I've seen this written, and I think it's just even creepier, is that once Elizabeth began screaming, Jeanette asked her mother to be um, taken out of the courtroom. And there's something just so sort of creepy about saying oh get that woman out of here so Uh once she was once she left um she was either placed on a table or again you see some some um accounts of the story have her sort of striding up boldly and then standing up on the table herself and she in her testimony this these are her exact words she said my mother is a witch and i know that to be true i have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog which she called ball the dog did ask what she would have him do and she answered that she would have him help her to kill so in addition to that um you sort of mentioned that there was this gathering and she said about that At 12 noon, about 20 people came to our house. My mother told me they were all witches. So Mm -hmm. she accused her mother or identified her mother as being a witch. Um, She identified the people who were at the Malkin Tower meeting. And in addition to that, she also gave um, testimony 
testimony against her brother, James. And James had been accused of uh, murder by witchcraft of two people named Anne Townley and John Duckworth. And and what I find um, to be really surprising and sort of um, tragic is James, probably in a bid to save himself from the scaffold, also accused his mother. But Jeanette, um, she turned on him and she said that he had been a witch for three years and that she had seen his spirit kill three people. And her testimony over this sort of two day trial was so convincing that, um, I want to say most of her family members um, and her neighbors were accused uh, or sorry, were, were found guilty. So of the nine accused, Allison Device, Elizabeth Device, James Device, Ann Whittle, Ann Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullock and Jane Bullock, they were all found guilty and hanged, many because of the testimony of this nine year old girl on Gallows Hill in Lancaster on the 20th of August, 1612. Um, Another woman who had been accused, Elizabeth Southerns, died while awaiting trial, and only one, Alice Gray, was found not guilty. Hmm. And so we have so much information about this particular incident, the Pendle Witch Trials, because the court of the clerk, Thomas Potts, wrote a book sort of recounting everything that happened during this trial. And it was called The Wonderful Discovery of Witches in the County of Lancaster. And, you know, what's really sad is that, like you said, some of these witches, um, like Allison, genuinely did sort of believe in her own guilt but many of these women they were just women who like you said had been sort of wise women they had been sort of accepted members of the community and it was sort of this family feud that turned everything so sour Mm. um and sort of another note on Jeanette is that um once you had her testimony and her testimony or the story of her testimony had sort of been spread in this book, The Wonderful Discovery of Witches, it became more common to have children testify in trials. And like you said, um, we have the Salem witch trials in America. And in that, there was um, a lot of evidence that were given by people. And those trials resulted in 19 people being hanged. Um, and Jeanette sort of did get hers in the end (laughs) because in 1633, she was accused by a 10 year old boy named Edmund Robinson of being a witch. Um, and I believe she was acquitted and she went on to live her life, but I'm sure that during that particular, uh, moment in her life when she was being accused by that 10 year old boy, just a year older than she was when she had accused these members of her family, including her mother and brother of witchcraft. She was, she was sort of thinking, um, that she was getting her just desserts. Yeah. You know, I wonder, like, I really wonder around about the psychology of that, like for kids who don't yet know, what's real from what's imaginary. And, you know, if you hear all this stuff about witches all the time, and if you hear it in church, and if you hear it, it's just like part of your culture is that there's witches and like how much, how it might've actually been kind of like a game to them, to these kids. Um, Like, I just, I wonder how much of it was like them being sort of evil versus them kind of thinking that it was just like almost a fun sort of 
imaginary game they were playing or something. I'd be really interested. And if somebody wants to do a study of the psychology of kids who testified against their parents in witchcraft trials. And you also sort of wonder if they really fully comprehend the consequences of what you're doing. Because with Alice Kettler, her children were adults when they were accusing her. But, you know, with Jeanette, she was just nine years old. And, you know, it's interesting that she said that you wonder about sort of how much of how much of it was her sort of thinking that it was a game sort of versus her being this evil child. And if you look up Jeanette device, just, just do a Google image search of her. You get these sort of drawings of her as this really creepy little like goblin child. (laughs) So, you know, that's sort of the, that's sort of the image that gets projected onto her today. Um, And speaking of her being sort of sinister, um, I just read a newspaper article that someone, oh gosh, I closed the article, but someone in a church, I believe it was St. Mary's in Lancashire, had seen her wandering around um, a cemetery. And they were absolutely positive that it was the uh, the ghost of Jeanette because she was she had been this sort of sinister figure and she was still sort of lurking around. But if her ghost hypothetically is sort of still sticking around you wonder how much of it is because she was this evil little girl versus you know the guilt for what she did to her family yeah yeah so it's i think either way you look at it it's just a really really sad story yeah yeah absolutely so um i'm going to end things on um a sad and a strange note with helen duncan and she is popularly known as one of the last people to be imprisoned under the British Witchcraft Act of 1735. And I'll talk about this a little bit later. She wasn't actually the last person. She was the second to last. Um, But that sort of that other person sort of gets forgotten in history. And she's popularly called the last person. And she was a Scottish medium. Um, And she was really famous for sort of holding these seances in which she would um, sort of spew ectoplasm out of her mouth. Um, And yeah, some tests on the ectoplasm really uh, proved that this was, of course, not ectoplasm. And it was actually cheesecloth. Um, (laughs) Yeah. But so she was uh, this clairvoyant. and she would hold these seances in which she would be, uh, in which she claimed to be able to summon the spirits of these people who had recently died. Um, and like I said, in summoning these spirits, she would emit this sort of ectoplasm from her mouth. You should really look at pictures on the on the internet because once you see pictures, you you have to wonder how anybody could have been fooled. But because they just look, um, and pardon the pun, they just look cheesy. But in, <laughs> in 1941, um, she spoke. And again, if you didn't catch that date, that was 1941. Um, and she spoke to a deceased sailor who had been aboard the HMS Barham. And he revealed um, when she raised his spirit that the ship, ship had been sunk in the Mediterranean. 
And this turned out to be a pretty big deal because the war office, this is during World War II, they hadn't officially released the fact that the ship had been sunk and they or they wouldn't release the fact until several months later. So she seemed to have some sort of information that was coming from um, a secret source. And the government had really been trying to hide this because it had been sunk by this German U-boat and 861 British lives had been lost. And so after sort of hearing about this woman who seemed to have information about this ship being sunk that hadn't yet been released to the public, the government became very suspicious of her. And so um, a few years later, on the 19th of January... In 1944, one of her seances was raided by the police and she was arrested. And she was brought to trial initially under an act um, that was related to fortune telling and astrology and spiritualism. But it was considered a pretty petty charge that really only had a fine associated with it. But because the government was afraid that she had um, access to government secrets somehow, they decided to resurrect um, the Witchcraft, Witchcraft Act of 1735. And it hadn't been used for more than a century. Um, yeah, so they were, (laughs) they were really sort of desperate to get this woman on something that would get her some jail time, hopefully in an effort to keep her, um, from releasing any more of these sort of government secrets that she might somehow be privy to. And so she was, um, brought to court at the Old Bailey and, uh, the trial lasted for seven days. And eventually she was sentenced to nine months in London's Holloway prison. And mm-hmm. of course, as you can imagine, because they had brought out the Witchcraft Act, it ended up being this really sort of well publicized and sensationalized trial. Um, and eventually, uh, the act was um, repealed in 1951, um, but she was released from prison in um, 1944 on September 22nd. And like I said, there's this misconception that she was the last person, but there had actually been a woman who was tried shortly after her named uh, Rebecca York. And that didn't get as much publicity because she was a much older woman. She was a woman in her 70s. And consequently, she was um, let off with just a fine. And because she wasn't uh, suspected of having access to government secrets, uh, you know, the wartime government wasn't so concerned with her. But she was released from prison in 1944, and she sort of went on to live a pretty quiet life until 1956, when, again, she was holding a seance. And at that point, they arrested her, but um, it wasn't because of sort of any sort of spooky prophecies or spooky information that she had access to, but rather um, it was because um, seances were illegal because they were considered fraudulent activity. And they didn't bring any charges against her. Um, But she did die that same year, um, 1956, on December 6th. Um, And she is remembered as the woman who was the last witch. And in her obituary, she was popularly called the last witch. So I thought that was a pretty interesting story because it took place so late in the game. People were still being accused of witchcraft 
in so the 1940s. Insane. Like, there was this whole thing called, like, the scientific revolution, guys. <laughs> well, and that was really <laughs> funny because um, Winston Churchill, when he actually got word about this, he was like, what are you doing? <laughs> I bet he was. <laughs> this is the modern age. We cannot be accusing people of witchcraft. But, yeah, yeah we were still doing it in the 1940s. Um, I guess, you know, times of war bring out the worst in people. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So that's our episode about witchcraft. Yeah. So I'm so excited that we did this. So we have... Hopefully people will have listened to the ghost one. If you haven't done that yet, you can go back and check that out. I guess we'll each have it in our archives. And um, yeah, and I hope you, I hope our listeners, I hope Renaissance English History podcast people enjoyed this. And if you haven't yet subscribed to History Bitches, you should totally do that. And um, that's my plug for her. Yeah. And History <laughs> Bitches listeners, if you haven't subscribed to Heather's podcast, <laughs> you should absolutely go do that because it's wonderful. And she has oh, just tons and tons of episodes that relate to women's history, if that's your thing. And I'm assuming if you're listening to History Bitches, it is. Um, and then she also <laughs> has other podcasts that relate to other bits of English Renaissance history. So you should definitely, definitely go check it out and subscribe because it's just fantastic. Yay. Yay. It's a, it's a podcast. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. love fest <laughs> it is and thank you again for contacting me um yeah, sort of thank for you initiating for this whole thing because it has been very very fun it has i'm so glad to have met you virtually and had all the talks we've had it's been really great i've enjoyed doing this so thank you so much so yeah yeah until oh. next time history bitches <laughs> thanks so much for listening to this very special ghoulish edition of the Renaissance English History Podcast. And I really want to thank Brittany again for being part of this with me and for doing this uh, special collaboration. Hopefully we can do more of these in the future. And just a reminder that if you go to www.englandcast.com, there are show notes and lots of resources and um, listening lists, podcasts, archives, all that kind of stuff. So again, www.englandcast.com. And remember, if you want to call me and leave some feedback, you can call me at 801-6-TESCO. 801-6-T-E-Y-S-K-O. Thanks so much. Have a great time and I will talk to you again soon.